Great to see you guys. Uh, James 2. Uh, we're going to read together verses 14 through 26, and um, our focus will be more on verses 18 through 26 uh, today. So once you get there, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll read the word together. This is like your chance to get a stretch in before you have to brutally sit for 30 minutes to an hour, depending. <laughs> Uh, You guys caught me. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that this is an incredible passage of scripture it's a controversial passage in scripture it could so easily be misinterpreted taken out of context uh, and put people into um, many sorts of traps and snares and and yet lord we believe it's your inerrant inspired word and it's consistent with everything you've said before and after it Uh, lord we just pray that your words would be upon my lips and and that you would use uh, the text today to Uh, bring us out of any um, error in our theology and any error in our living. Um, We just pray that you would set this church uh, to action, um, not because we have to, but because we get to be people who who live out our faith. Uh, We just pray that that would be a movement of your spirit here. And as as we sang, awake our soul today, Lord, would you awake us to the things that you've called us to. We look forward to hearing from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. If you walk into a supermarket, you'll find shelves stocked with light groceries. There's light mayonnaise, light dressing, light crackers, light cheese, light maple syrup, light potato chips, light spam. There's even light dog food. Everything these days needs to be less in calories, fat-free, 
No cholesterol. That's what my doctor tells me. But we want our foods to still taste great and to be less filling. Sadly, today there's many churchgoers who've taken the same approach to their Christianity. They've opted for gospel light and Christianity zero. It's a watered-down version of Christianity, a low-calorie faith. Several years ago, there was a cartoon that appeared in a newspaper that showed a church placard board or a church marquee. It was advertising to the community, and it read, The Light Church, 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments, and they're your choices. We use just three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. Everything you've wanted in a church and less. A friend of mine uh, had children, and uh, this was years ago. When they were kids, uh, he would get them into bed by promising them a cup of Coke because these kids just loved Coca-Cola. And so by the time everybody was in bed, he would bring them in this sip of Coke, but he'd water it down like to be 20% Coke and the rest water. And so uh, every time they'd go to their grandparents' house, they noticed that the Coca-Cola tasted a a whole lot more peppy than it was at bedtime. But uh, this whole idea of Coke Zero or Christianity Zero uh, is just an unbiblical thing, and it's something that James really confronts us on. It's true that grace is free, but it's definitely not cheap because Jesus paid a steep price to walk in obedience for the favor of God to be applied to us. Paul said in the book of Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is an incredible scripture that has ministered to the hearts of many and yet oftentimes it just stops there what i believed in my heart the lord jesus i'm saved that's it right or it's as uh, the book of acts chapter 8 shows us when philip was sh- preaching to the ethiopian eunuch the eunuch said what must i do to be saved and and uh, or what must i do to be baptized and and philip said if you believe with all your heart you may And that is an incredible pillar of the church, that we are saved by believing. Uh, We are saved uh, by the uh, basis of the finished work of Jesus uh, through faith for the purpose of living out life in obedience to him. And so we want to make sure that we're preaching a full gospel in this church. Uh, Not a watered-down gospel, not a watered-down Christianity. It is with the heart that a person receives God's righteousness. It is by faith and by belief. But the Lord has got something for us from that point on that is a response to his incredible grace upon us. And so James just speaks to us that rather than Christianity zero, we need a cup of jolt Christianity, that our faith should pack a punch. You know, uh, you might have heard the term radical Christianity. And you know what? The truth is there is no such thing as radical Christianity. Christianity, 
is radical Christianity. And what you read in the book of Acts that seems so radical is actually what the Lord has for everybody who would put their trust in him and receive the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the the living God into their lives. It'll change you. It'll change your affections. It'll change your desires. It'll change your behaviors. That's the work of the Spirit in regeneration. So here we come to this chapter where James challenges us against that light Christianity, against easy believism. One man, Martin Debellius, he's a classic commentator on James, claims that this passage is one of the most difficult New Testament passages in general. And we get to work through it together today because James is going to uh, give us an, an understanding of things like works, things like faith, things like righteousness, things like justification. And these are all words that if you don't have a right definition of them, you can become confused very easily. Because it's in the book of James that we read about faith, and yet in the New Testament, there's two different types of faith. There's a dynamic faith, first of all. It's a dynamic, powerful force through which a believer is intimately united with Jesus Christ, his Lord. It is a faith that saves us, and it is evidenced by action. But then there's also a type of faith that James talks about, and there's another word added to it, faith alone. Faith alone. It is a faith that is dead as it is alone. It's lonely. It's a faith that is words only and has no actions with it. The New Living Translation of of verse 17 tells us that that kind of faith can't save anyone. So when we go into this text, we want to know that James, when he speaks of faith, is referring to a different kind of faith than, say, Paul is in the book of Romans. The book of Romans type faith is that dynamic, powerful force that a believer is saved. And the type of faith that James speaks of when he speaks of somebody who has a lonely faith is a dead faith. So two different types of faith. But there's also two different types of works. Two different types of works. The first type of work is a work that is done out of selfish strength, self-motivation for self-glory with the attention to appease God. By bringing our selfish strength before him in an effort to be righteous with God. That is a bad kind of faith. Or excuse me, a bad type of work. The second type of work is a work that flows out of the righteousness that God has already brought upon us by his grace through faith in him. It is a work that is done not to appease God of his wrath, but to please God because his wrath has been removed from us. It is a work that honors God, that worships God, that obeys God. And this is the type of work that James would focus on in his book. Douglas Moo, it's it's been great to read Douglas Moo because uh, it's been said he wrote the book on Romans. He wrote the commentary 
on Romans. Very well respected. So it's been great to read him for James as well. He writes, James is not arguing that works must be added to faith. His point, rather, is that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. Trying to add works to a bogus faith is an exercise in futility. For only by accepting the implanted word, as chapter 1 verse 21 tells us, and experiencing the internal transformation that the word of God brings, can one produce works pleasing to God. And so let's get into our text today and just get into a little bit more of how James is challenging us against some kind of uh, easy believism or a type of faith that is a lonely faith. Verse 18 says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Essentially, this is a hypothetical man that uh, James is addressing here. It's a man that, that is saying and arguing with James, Hey, James, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, James would say, and I will show you my faith by my works. James continues this dialogue with an imaginary someone separating faith from deeds. When the New Testament would tell us they are inseparable. As you remember last week, James challenged us for a test in our life that if you have a brother or a sister come to you who is naked or hungry and you just merely tell them to go away and say oh i'll pray for your hunger or i'll 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 pray for your uh, clothing but you don't do anything to help them that that is an evidence of a of a life that hasn't been changed yet by the grace of god and so james continues this dialogue with an imaginary someone who would separate faith and deeds some people they would say are merciful towards the poor but some aren't People are just different. And this hypothetical someone that James is talking about is trying to separate a life of faith from a life of faith and works. And James is telling us that you can't do that. Works and deeds and actions are not optional for those who have faith in Jesus. They are inevitable. They are a natural outflowing of someone whose life has been changed by Jesus. It is true that we can't see what's going on inside somebody's heart. But we can see the result of what has taken place in the heart. It'll be lived out externally. Someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. It's just a separate thing. But James tells us that we can show our faith By our good works. Our faith is seen because of and from our good works. Those works are evidence of faith. Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. The book of Colossians in chapter 1 verses 5 through 6 says, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, this gospel 
which has come to you as it has to all the world, is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. The gospel that is preached brings forth fruit. From the day it is preached, it brings forth fruit. From the day somebody hears and knows by experience the grace of God in truth, it brings forth fruit. It brings forth action. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. And so Paul there to the Galatians are preaching that you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And yet... Our faith works through love, he says. So we're not saved by getting circumcised, but our faith will work itself out in love. I like the New Living Translation of this hypothetical argument with this pretend man. It says, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds. Faith is invisible. You can't see it unless you've got the special goggles. And the special goggles are those good deeds. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Here James, the brother of Jesus, is preaching to us that faith is not only an intellectual assent. Faith isn't only just agreeing with certain core truths of Christianity. You may say, I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. I believe in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Sure, my life is not exactly lining up with all of these things I say I believe, but I believe. James argues that even the wicked angels and the devil himself believe in the core truths of the faith. It's been said that the demons are of the, among the most orthodox of theologians, but their works do not affirm that they believe these things. If you read the, the gospel accounts, the demons have declared these words from their lips. Jesus, you son of God! Or Jesus of Nazareth, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Another demon said, These men, Paul and his disciples, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. Another demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know. The demons know Jesus is God and that he is the final judge. And if you just took the demons' words for it, you would say these demons are Christians, wouldn't you? We would say that they are brothers. We might put a demon in a place of leadership if we weren't careful. What is it about the devils that make their words of no effect? It's that they're not living out their belief in these things. They're living in exact rebellion to the things that they have spoken out. I believe it was David Platt that wrote, I fear that countless men and women have bought into the soul-damning idea that mere intellectual assent to the truth of God in Christ 
is enough to save. And the reality is that these people are no better off than the demons themselves. Strong words. Strong words by James, the half-brother of Jesus. You believe in one God? You know the Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echud, Hero, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The demons believe that. They've seen it. And they tremble at that. They shudder. That language speaks of someone who's come in in contact with supernatural things and it causes their hair to stand up on end. Like Like a cat who's had a confrontation with a dog. The demons know this is true and they tremble at it. But they are destined for hellfire and the Spirit of God inspiring James tells us through this text that there are people that even fill pews that are no better off. And so faith is not just a mere head knowledge, maybe being able to articulate uh, the, the core convictions of the faith. But faith is also not simply an emotional response. The demons tremble. The demons have experience. The demons have their goosebumps, if you will. And many people go to church and get the warm fuzzies and have their hair stand up on it and get the, get the goosebumps and have the experiences. The demons even have that. And so we want to be biblical in our understanding of what true saving faith is. It's not just a head knowledge, nor is it just some kind of a, of a warm fuzzy or, or emotional response. It is a living, powerful, active obedience that comes out of response to God and his grace. Verse 20 tells us, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? This is the second time in this section where James tells us that a faith that is not working is a dead Faith. We see it in verse 17, we see it here in verse 20, and we see it at the end of the chapter in verse 26. It is dead. This speaks of it being a corpse. Useless. Put your finger up to its pulse. It's not beating. Lift its hand up. It drops down on top. Do a sternal rub on it, right? Nothing happens. It is dead. Useless. Worthless. Futile. Moo says, in what way is such faith dead? In the sense that it does not attain its purpose. It cannot save. It cannot save. Faith without works cannot save. It's not a saving faith. I like the phraseology here. But do you want to know, oh foolish man? He's saying, do you want evidence That faith without works is dead. He calls this hypothetical man, you know, it could be someone who's argued with him in the past, but it's this uh, broad sense of um, the arguments that he would already be facing as people are reading his letter. These are foolish men who have a lack of understanding, and usually the implication of their intellectual stubbornness has moral outflows 
Their morality, the lives that they live, are a reflection of their foolish hearts. Hearts that have been darkened. Hearts that have resisted the Spirit of God. Faith without works, he says, it's dead. Faith without works literally does not work. As we read verse 21 through 23... We have an example of this. He says, did you want an example? Do you want evidence? I'm going to bring up Abraham, the father of the faith, as our uh, example. Let's read verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. It's in these three verses here that we have our four big theological words given. All right. We've got the word faith given. And we've already understood how James means faith. He's saying there's a Uh, A dead faith that is a lonely faith, okay? Uh, There is a uh, type of a work before God that is useless because it's a self-righteous work, but there's also a kind of work that is done in response to God, in obedience to God, out of a love relationship with God, and that is a pleasing work to God. But it's also in these three verses that we have the word righteousness, and we have another big Christian word, justification or justified in the scripture we have two different examples of righteousness there's a positional righteousness which is how we stand before god god has made us righteous in christ jesus as second corinthians 5 21 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We've become the righteousness of God, but not because of what we've done, because of what He's done. He's given us His righteousness. And so because of Jesus, we have positional righteousness. But then there's also practical righteousness. Practical righteousness shows how we live before God. And these two different types of righteousness are not disconnected from each other. They're often lived out hand in hand as Abraham is the example. We read of the example of Abraham in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22. Now, in Genesis 15, let's read verses 1 through 6 together. This is before uh, he had tried to sacrifice his son. This is about 30 years previously. It says in chapter 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house, no one, uh, excuse me, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven 
and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. You have Abram who was pursued by the grace of God. He was from Ur of the Chaldees and there was nothing in and of him as a man that made him righteous before God. We have an example of the election of God by grace as he goes and he pursues this man from a pagan land. He wasn't from a Christian home. The Lord pursued Abram. And Abram was a man who was about 85 years old and he had no kids and his wife was old as well. And he has this promise that his descendants would be as the number of the stars in the sky. And to Abram, the Lord said that he would have descendants and he believed in the word of the Lord. And because he believed in the word of the Lord, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He had a positional righteousness giving to him there because of his faith, because of his belief in what seemed impossible, but God, because of his belief and his trust in the Lord, he had righteousness put into his account. That's what that means. It was accounted to him for righteousness. It was that day that Abram was saved. It was like a Billy Graham crusade right there, just between Abram and God. He was justified that day. He was safe and secure based on the Messiah who was going to come. His own seed that would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad. That was the day that the Lord appeared to him and Abram believed in him and he was made righteous. He saw the day of Jesus and he was glad. But 30 years later, in Genesis chapter 22, God tests Abraham's belief. They came, verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 9, they came to the place that God had told Abraham. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. This was an incredible thing because it was through this son, his only son, that the Lord said, all of your descendants will come and be a blessing to the world. And yet he's obeying the Lord by binding him and getting ready to kill him. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham believed the Lord in such a way that even if God allowed him to kill his son, God was able to raise up his son from the dead because God said there would be a blessing to the world through this boy and there was going to be a descendants through this boy. God said so, so even if I kill him, he's going to come back from the dead. I believe the Lord and I'm acting on it right now. So he stretched out his hand to take the knife to slay his son. And verse 11 of Genesis 22 says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So 30 years after Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham believes on the Lord, he is saved, it is accounted to him for righteousness, that faith is tested 30 years later, as well as seven chapters in Genesis later. And it says 
Now I know that you fear God. Since. I know that you fear God. I know that you're saved since something happened. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Justified in chapter 15 by faith, by believing in the Lord. And that is tested 30 years later. That test is good. Gets an A. And in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18, by the way, Philo labels this offering of Isaac as the greatest of Abraham's works. And it says in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, the Lord says, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham, our father, is an example to us of justification by the grace of God through faith in him, but that it is for the purpose of good works in response to the goodness of God. In John chapter 8, verse 39, the enemies of the Lord shout out to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. If you were Abraham's children, you would be full of action like Abraham was full of action. You would be full of obedience as Abraham was full of obedience. And as you read the book of Galatians, and recently I was reading it with um, my, my uh, daughter, Lainey, and we were reading about Abraham and how he's our father, even though we're Gentiles. We become his children by believing in the Lord, by having that same type of faith that Abraham had. And we're also the children of Abraham as we follow in his footsteps, steps, James would tell us. As we would be obedient to the call of the Lord. That too shows that we are children of Abraham. The conclusion of this story of Abraham is in verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now this can be a problem passage. This can be uh, a big debatable chapter. But we want to understand there are two different kinds of justifications. When you study the Bible, you've got to do your studying. You've got to look at the definitions. You've got to look at the authors. You've got to look at who they were writing to. And you've got to understand there's two different types of justifications in the scripture. Most Christians take their understanding of the word justify from the writings of Paul in the book of Romans and in, 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 in the exposition in Galatians. And that's really good. That is a great place to understand justification. That's where many people get their understanding of biblical theology and soteriology, studying salvation. It's there in the book of Romans that we read of what's called, and this is our first type of justification, it's called initial justification. 
initial justification. And that is where God, the righteous judge in heaven, slams down the gavel of the judgment throne in heaven. And he declares anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, he declares them righteous from his holy throne in heaven. That's justification. And one cute way to remember it is I'm justified just as if I'd never sinned. What a glorious time it is in a person's life. Initial justification. Declared righteous by the judge of heaven. And it happens at the moment of salvation when someone puts their trust in Jesus. And Paul in the book of Romans uses justification in that manner. Now, when we're studying that type of justification, we need to avoid thinking that works are necessary and are a necessary basis as a means of our salvation. And that's what Paul preaches against in the book of Romans. So avoid in Romans thinking that works are a necessary basis or means of salvation. But there's another type of justification called final justification. Final justification is at the end of our lives or throughout our lives where we are shown to be righteous. We are shown to be righteous. We are demonstrated to be righteous by the things that we do. It's the confirmation of a Christian's life. And that's what James speaks of here when he refers to Abraham being justified by works. He's not speaking of an initial justification as if he was saved by works apart from faith. We know that to be unbiblical. He's speaking of a final justification where it is shown to be true in his life. And when we study the second form of justification, we need to avoid thinking that works are not necessary as evidence of our salvation. So two different types of justification and two different things to avoid as you study them. So the justify that Paul refers to, how a person gets into relationship with God, is different to the one that, ju- that James speaks of where relationship with Jesus ultimately has a look to it in receiving God's final approval. There's a difference between Paul's letter to the Romans and James' letter to the brothers. Seems to be distinct contradiction as you read Romans chapter 3, verse 28, that would say a person is justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Or as you read James chapter 2, verse 24, that would say a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. But they are not in contradiction. As Moo says, the verse here in James verse tw- chapter 2, verse 24, is like a lightning rod in a controversy between James and Paul. But when properly interpreted in their own context, Paul and James are not opposed to one another. They give the appearance of a conflict because they are writing from very different vantage points in order to combat very different problems. And you might remember last week, it's been said that it's like James and Paul are toe-to-toe fighting each other when the truth is they're actually standing back-to-back fighting different enemies. James is over here fighting those that are uh, a proponent of easy believism and a life that never has to show for anything they claim. And then over here, you've got Paul that is fighting against people that are uh, self-righteous and trying to claim righteousness before God by their works. So they're both fighting different enemies, 
but they're protecting the same gospel as they're back to back. Let me just give you some quick compare contrast between Paul and James. Paul in the book of Romans where he would say a person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. And James in the book of James who says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. First of all, what Paul is dealing with in Romans is different than what James is dealing with in James. And they come from two different starting points. Paul says that works have no value in bringing a man or woman to Jesus. And I hope you're saying amen to that, because it is absolutely true. Works have no value in bringing a man or a woman to Jesus. Someone who would say, well, I did this and I did that, so I've satisfied God, is still depraved and is yet to be born again. Paul says no to them. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be good enough by your own works to satisfy God's righteousness. James writes to those who confess to have come to a knowledge of Jesus, but have no works accompanying that confession. James tells us that Jesus is the grounds of salvation, but that works is the evidence of an encounter with Christ. James says, I don't want to hear about your faith if it is is not accompanied by good works. Paul would say that, speak of the faith that issues from works, okay? In other words, works-based righteousness. That is bad. James speaks of a works that comes from faith. That is good. That is a righteousness-based works. Paul would be dealing more with a declaration that works cannot declare one righteous. But James is dealing with demonstration. Works can demonstrate that one has been made righteous. Paul would say, works are of no value in bringing a person into relationship with God. And James would say where such a relationship has already been established, works are essential evidence I know many of you are getting this and you're ready to preach it after me. And that's awesome. That's where I want you guys to be. But the key between Paul and James is their references to Abraham. Paul will reference Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And James will reference Abraham here in chapter 2 of James. When Paul refers to the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15... Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's look at his reference here. Romans 4, 1 through 5. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So he's using Abraham as the example of that initial justification. 
from Genesis chapter 15. He was initially saved when he believed on the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And if it would have been by his works, then he would have been in debt, or excuse me, God would have been in debt to him. God is a debtor to no man. But the problem is Abraham could have never done enough good works for God to have been in debt to him. It would have still been Abraham in debt to God because he has sinned against the righteous judgments of God a trillion billion times more than any of the good things he ever did. Romans also says in chapter 4 verse 9, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also. In other words, the Jews would argue that you can't be righteous unless you've been circumcised. And Paul uses the argument that, you know what? It was in chapter 15 that Abraham was declared righteous before the Lord because of belief. And it wasn't until about 18 years later in chapter 17 of Genesis that circumcision had even come up across his plate. He was saved by faith before the time of the sign of circumcision. And in chapter 5, verse 1 of Romans, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul uses Abraham as the example. Father Abraham is the example that we are not saved by our works, or our own righteousness. We have nothing to the table to bring before God. We are saved by the finished work of Jesus and by trusting in that alone. The contrast is with James. James, in his referring to Abraham, refers to a time in Abraham's life that was 30 years after his justification, decades after he was already believing and was declared righteous. James is saying that Abraham proved to be righteous. He was shown to be righteous years after his justification. Scripture clearly teaches that salvation is by grace through faith alone, but also shown to be real by its works. Let's read a couple of those passages. Romans 3.19 says, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If you're going to try to come before the Lord on that day and say, Lord, let me into heaven. I've been a really good person. Your mouth is just flapping, justifying yourself. Romans tells us that your mouth will be shut and you'll be found to be a liar because there is none good in and of themselves. No, not one. Romans goes on to say the righteousness of God apart from the law, apart from trying to work out the works of Moses, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Gary Bridges writes, you can never be so bad as to be beyond grace's reach. 
And you can never be so good as to be beyond grace's need. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 2, 8 and 9, or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You guys, we love that passage. And it's wonderful to know that we are saved by grace through faith. We would be bragging before God about all that we've done if it was by our works. We're not saved by works. But we are saved for good works. And the very next verse, we don't have it up here today, but verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's created beforehand that we should walk in them now. So that shows us that we're saved by grace through faith for good works. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book says that faith is the one attitude of the heart that is the exact opposite of depending on ourselves. When we put our faith in Jesus, we lay aside all of our own righteousness and we come to him empty-handed and say, the only thing that I could possibly bring to our relationship is all of my sin that condemns me. I come empty-handed and I receive your goodness, your righteousness. Faith in Abraham's life was working together with his works. It's the Greek wordplay synergy used in verse 22. The NASB says, you see that faith was working with synergy, working with his works. Abraham shows us that faith and works are not separated. And the evidence of his justification was that he trusted and lived out costly obedience to the word of God. Verse 25, likewise, here's another example. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Here we have Rahab, who was a Gentile Canaanite prostitute woman. She had a lot of things going against her, especially living in her day and age. But when she heard the report about the true and living God who fought for his people, Israel, she feared and trembled before that God and would do anything to obey him. The life of Rahab has been called scandalous grace. Scandalous grace, but not in a moral way. The grace of God shocks us by reaching down to some of the least likely people. And pouring out mercy and love and grace. Scandalous grace. What did Rahab say about this God? She believed this God. And it was shown by her actions. Alistair Begg says, Rahab's faith stands in direct contrast to the armchair philanthropist of verse 15 who says, Oh, you're hungry and you're naked? Oh, be warm and be filled. I'll pray for you, buddy. That's the armchair philanthropist. You've got him over there claiming he has faith but no works. And then you've got, in stark contrast, Rahab, who even though everything within her would be screaming, why would you obey this God? Why would you you fear this God? He's everything against what you are as a Canaanite Gentile prostitute woman. And yet she trusts the Lord. She trusts in this 
God. She refused to live in a way that her past had defined. She didn't let her past define how she would live. And in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, we read her story. As these spies come into the land, she sees them and brings them into her house there in Jericho. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she was hiding them. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And that you did to those two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our heart melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I've shown you kindness, that you will also show me kindness, show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Rahab didn't just believe that God would overthrow Jericho. She tied her fortunes to God's people. She chose sides here, and faith will always choose sides. And so what happened here, Joshua 6, 22, Joshua said to the two men who were out and spied the country, go into that harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who'd been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel but they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels and bronze of iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua and sent, uh, had sent to spy out Jericho. Hebrews has a commentary on her life in the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Notice it says there in Hebrews eleven thirty-one 31, that she was a believer, but that belief was shown in the way that she acted with the spies of Israel. Hebrews 11, 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of of things not seen. And so we have a conclusion and, and an illustration here in the final verse of the chapter. This is, has the word for in the beginning, which connects it to the story of Rahab, which connects it to the story of Abraham, which connects it all to that, that faith without works is dead. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So in what way is faith that's lonely dead? In the same way that a body without the spirit is dead. It's that type of dead. Maybe you've never seen a, a corpse before. Maybe you have, but you, if you've seen one, you know what James is talking about here. I mean, you, you remember that person with life and vigor and action and being able to communicate with you. And then you see them dead and there is nothing there. You can't scream loud enough to wake them. You can't shout loud enough. You can't slap them around. You can't, you know, pour cold water on their face. There's nothing there. And so too is a 
claim of faith that has no works. Alistair Begg says genuine faith is a life of active consecration in the obedience which holds nothing back from God and holds nothing back from human need. Holds nothing back from God. Holds nothing back from human need as we see the need for loving the people that are hurting throughout the book of James. Here's today's big idea. When the Spirit of God stirs up a faith and invades the human heart, you cannot remain the same. It's the work of the Spirit of God in you. If nothing much spiritually has transpired, if you are no more like Christ now than you were the day you believed, if your life shows no evidence of God's impact on you, if you're the same old, same old, then the Spirit of God may be detecting in you today a dead faith. We'll have Johnny come on up and Adam come up, and we're going to close as they're coming up reading the Phillips translation. I want to read it to you. I have it on the screen for you. I like the Phillips translation uh, of this section that we've been in. It says, Now what use is it, brothers, my brothers, for a man to say he has faith if his actions do not correspond with it? I like that. If his actions do not correspond with it. Could that sort of faith save anyone's soul? If a fellow man or woman has no clothes to wear and nothing to eat, and one of you say, good luck to you and I hope you'll keep warm and find enough to eat, and yet give him nothing to meet their physical needs, what on earth is the good of that? Yet that is exactly what a bare faith without a corresponding life is like, useless and dead. If we only have faith, a man could easily challenge us by saying, you say that you have faith and I have merely good actions. Well, all you can do is to show me a faith without corresponding actions. But I can show you by my actions that I have faith as well. To the man who thinks that faith by itself is enough, I feel inclined to say, so you believe that there's one God? That's fine. So do all the devils in hell, and shudder in terror. For my dear short-sighted man, can't you see far enough to realize that faith without the right actions is dead and useless? Think of Abraham, our ancestor. Wasn't his, his actions which really justified him in God's sight when his faith led him to offer his son Isaac on the altar? Can't you see that his faith and his actions were, so to speak, partners that his faith was implemented by his deed? That is what the scripture means when it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. A man is justified before God by what he does as well as by what he believes. Rahab, who was a prostitute and a foreigner, has been quoted as an example of faith, yet surely it was her action that pleased God when she welcomed Joshua's reconnoitering party and got them safely back by a different route. Yes, faith without action is as dead as a body without a soul. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we thank you for choosing a, 
a lawyer like Paul, with the intelligence that he had to write just the incredible treatise of Romans to that group of men who were just bound by self-righteousness so far from salvation because they took confidence in their deeds and placed no confidence in Jesus. And we thank you for inspiring James to write to this group of brothers who claimed to believe you, but there was no fruit from their lives. We recognize that the same problems on both ends of the spectrum are, are something we see in Prineville, something we might even see in this church, Lord. We believe this is your word for us, where we're at in our church, where we're at in our church history, where we're at as a culture in America. Lord, we just pray that you would push us out and away from just a lazy faith, a faith without works, a faith that is dead and that you would stir up in us by the Spirit of God, just an outflowing of love for one another, service to one another, worship to you, desire to be in your word, desire to be giving of our resources, desiring to submit to one another in love, to, to be accountable to you and to each other, Lord, that you would take us up from just being Sunday morning pew sitters, Lord, and Move us to action for you. You've got an incredible call for each person. We pray you would protect us from error in any one of the extremes that we've read today. And that we would allow your word to penetrate our heart. We repent of any laziness today. And we repent from any self-righteousness. We come humbly before the cross and receive what you've done for us. We rejoice in the empty tomb knowing that resurrection power is available for us today as well. And we receive afresh the power of the Holy Spirit to live out the action that you've created for us before the foundations of the world that we should act in them. Do your work today. Let's close in this song together.